right. Well, good morning, everybody. Delighted to be with you and delighted to be celebrating with all of you this Memorial Day weekend. We had the uh, privilege yesterday of attending a funeral that was a friend of ours, would be 96 this next month, wounded twice in World War II, a Purple Heart recipient two times, and he went to be with the Lord yesterday. We thought how fitting on this Memorial Day weekend uh, that Harry went home to his, his reward. It's great to have the children in the service with us, isn't it? Now, kids, I need to ask you to help me out, okay? If your mommy and daddy are distracted by, are instructed, uh, distracted by the coloring part of the page and the word search thing, you kind of tap them and say, hey, listen to the sermon, okay? You're supposed to be paying attention uh, to Pastor Sam while he's, while he's preaching. You guys help me out with that? Okay, we are working through the Gospel of John. We are up to chapter 7. And today we're going to be looking at the majority of the chapter together. And the topic, I'm calling this Living Water and Divided Opinions. And we are going to uh, hear what I think is a climactic announcement that Jesus makes regarding living water. It's something that we all are going to be drawn to, whether you know the Lord as your Savior for many years or you're just considering the Christian faith as something that might be in your future, this is a text that speaks powerfully to us. So let's pray and ask the Lord to help us as we study. Father, we come to you as dependent people, as needy people, as sinful people, failing people. We stand in need of your forgiveness and your mercy and your uh, remaking of us into new creatures. We uh, are confident that through the preaching and teaching of your word and the ministry of your spirit in our hearts, that that process is exactly what you are doing. And so we submit ourselves to that this morning. We pray that the blessed Holy Spirit would be our teacher and that we would clearly see Christ and his claims in this text, that every heart might be drawn closer to him and become more like him through his grace. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So every culture has a a myth or story about the fountain of youth, from ancient civilizations all the way forward. If you grew up here in America, you probably remember your uh, maybe U.S. history where uh, talking about the early explorers that came here to the United States, that came to North America, a fellow by the name of Ponce de Leon, the Spanish conquistador, uh, or as we referred to him in southern Indiana as Ponce de Leon, okay? Anyway, uh, Leon came to uh, this part of the world looking for the fountain of youth. It was believed that if you bathed in it or drank from it, you would live forever. You would never grow old and um, came to Florida from the Bahamas and thought Florida was just another island, Uh, found a fountain or two, but nothing that seemed to be the fountain of youth, went back to Puerto Rico, and as jokes go, he was asked, Ponce, did you find it? Did you find the fountain of youth? And he goes, no, but I found a great place to retire. (laughs) Did you hear the one about the uh, clothing designer who drank from the fountain of youth. Yes, she's forever 21. (laughs) Or have you ever thought about this? If you soak your hands in the fountain of youth, would your skin wrinkle? You got to think about that for a minute, right? 
Would, would your skin wrinkle? Now, the thing I love about these Fountain of Youth jokes, you hear it coming? They never grow old. All right. <laughs> now, we laugh about the Fountain of Youth, that myth, and modern people like us, we would never believe in something like that, Right? And yet, how do you explain the billion-dollar vitamin industry, the billion-dollar skincare industry? In our culture, we have declared war on wrinkles and sagging skin and gray hair. And we, we're connected to this desire as well. Age is the enemy. Oldness is not to be desired. Forever young, forever youth. That's what we're all longing for. And the truth is, in every human heart, we know we were created by our Creator to live forever with Him. And the current world in which we live, it's broken. The funeral we went to yesterday, yeah, we celebrated a life, but we mourned something that's broken. Death is the invader. Death is the intruder. Death is the enemy. It's not right. (laughs) Something's broken in our world. And so there's this longing in every heart to want to live forever the way God designed us. Well, in today's text, here in John 7, I have good news for you. The fountain of youth actually exists. It actually is a thing. And every single person is invited to access it. That's exactly what we're going to see here as we come through the text in John 7. Now, I need to bring you up just a little bit of context because uh, two weeks ago we were talking about the beginning of John 7 and how Jesus' brothers who did not yet believe in him as the Messiah, they were challenging him, hey, the, the Feast of Tabernacles is coming, this feast that happened every fall and was one of those feasts that everybody, all the males in Israel were expected to travel up to Jerusalem as pilgrims for this in the fall, this harvest festival. We want you to to go up there, and if you're really the Messiah, go put on a Messiah show and get some people to believe in you and, you know, grab the moment, become a celebrity. And Jesus tells them, no, no, you, you guys are working on a completely different value system and timetable than I am. And he gives clear indication, Jesus does, that he is listening to the Heavenly Father and the Heavenly Father's plans and timing and purpose. And so he says to them, I will not go to this feast. The truth is, he is the feast. He is the one tabernacling that they were all celebrating by living in their booze. They they just didn't realize that. So Jesus says, I won't go. But when we come to verse 14, we find out that Jesus actually did go. And this is where we're going to pick it up here this morning. So the setting, Jesus arrives at the temple And it says here in verse 14, midway through the festival. The festival lasted seven days. So uh, somewhere in the middle there, Jesus arrives, and it says he began teaching. Now, think about what the temple and its environs must have looked like. The the population of Jerusalem swells to to a million or more people during this this festival. I mean, there's, there's crowds everywhere. And all these people coming to celebrate 
the harvest that God has given, and also praying that God would honor his promises to the nation like he did for them in the wilderness with the water coming from the rock that someday he's going to pour out a new water of refreshing and, and provision for them in the coming of their Messiah and in the coming of the Holy Spirit they look forward to through their prophets. And so here in these crowds... Jesus, like any rabbi would do, was very common. Take your students on up to the temple and have them sit in a circle around you and and teach them. And so Jesus is teaching in the temple. Now, here's the irony. This text, as we work through it, it's so full of irony. As the reader, we know what some of the people in the story don't know. We're like, oh, wait, wait, wait. This is very ironic because they don't know something that we know. We're going to have that feeling all the way through this, but I want you to notice as we work through this text, all these crowds, it is a chaotic, a confusing scene with people battling with Jesus verbally. It's a social challenge they're bringing to him. And you have everybody from the Jewish leaders to Jewish pilgrims, lay people that have traveled up to Jerusalem, uh, the temple police get involved in this, and uh, this people that lived in Jerusalem. All these people are in and out of this conversation here in John chapter 7. And for me, it's a picture of a broken, lost humanity combating, rebelling against, even rebuking their creator and not realizing that the God that they're celebrating in this festival, he's standing right here in front of them in flesh and bone, in human form, standing before them, and they can't see it. I see in them a picture of all of us. And so these people unwittingly now enter into a debate with their creator. Look at verse 15 as the conflict begins. The crowd is going to challenge Jesus on two accounts. They're going to challenge his authority, and they're going to challenge his identity. So verse 15, the people were surprised when they heard him, and they heard his teaching. And here's the question they ask, how does he know so much when he hasn't been trained, they asked. In other words, um, you don't have the right credentials, and here's the first challenge. Sorry, that word response should be all the way over on the right. Just imagine that it's there, okay? Here's their first challenge. You don't have the right teaching credentials to contemporize it and personalize it. You didn't go to Lancaster Bible College or Capital Seminary. You don't have the right training. They were, the ver- verse 15, the word surprised, it actually means like they were pretty perturbed about this. Who do you think you are, Jesus? Now look at his response. In verse 16 to 19, he says, the problem is not with my teaching, it's with your listening and your learning. Look what he says. My message is not my own. It comes from God who sent me. All right, the rabbis would always quote someone else, another rabbi who had been trained, and they had mastered his teaching, and now They quote him as the authority. Well, Jesus quotes an authority too, but it's not another rabbi. He says, this message is from God. And look what he says. Anyone who wants to do the will of God will know whether my teaching is from God or is merely my own. Those who speak for themselves want glory only for themselves. But a person who seeks to honor the one who sent him speaks truth, not lies. Moses gave you the law, but none of you obeys it. In fact, you are trying to kill me. Here's what Jesus is saying. 
if you guys, these are probably the Jewish authorities that are confronting him about having not gone to the right seminary or seminary at all. He's saying, if you folks had really understood the law that God gave you through Moses and you were obeying it, you were submitting to the light, the truth that God had revealed to you, then you would right now be accepting me. You would be, you're in a relationship with the God who created you. You would know and recognize when that God sends his son to you. You would see that. And he's saying, but the proof is that you don't see that because you are trying to violate the very law that Moses gave you, thou shalt not kill. You're trying to kill me. So he's saying the problem is not my teaching. The problem is your ability to hear because your heart is rebelling against God even though outwardly you're keeping all the rules, you're trying to keep the law, and you've added to the law things that God never intended. Well, their challenge continues. They say, well, your teaching lacks authority because you're paranoid, we might say in our modern lingo. Verse 20 The crowd replied, you're demon-possessed. Who is trying to kill you? Later in John and over in Mark, they're going to accuse him of being insane. You know, lost your mind. You're controlled by something other than logical, reasonable thinking. That's their charge. Notice Jesus doesn't even answer their question. They say, who's trying to kill you? Apparently, these people that are speaking now are not aware of this plot that's out on Jesus' life. Who's trying to kill you? He doesn't answer the question. He continues in his response the confrontation to these people who claim to know God. He says, you you don't obey the law that you claim to revere. Look what he says. I did one miracle on the Sabbath, and you were amazed. Most likely, he's talking about John 5 when he healed the man who, by the pool of Bethesda, remember that story? And everybody got upset because he did it on the Sabbath day. You're not supposed to do work on the Sabbath day according not to the the law of God, but to the law that was piled on the law of God by the Jewish teachers. And they, Jesus said, you are all amazed, not amazed at the miracle. You were more upset and perturbed that I did something good. I performed a work that violated your legalistic rules, Right? You were all amazed. (laughs) He continues. And look at the hypocrisy he's going to point out. You guys work on the Sabbath too when you obey Moses' law of circumcision. Then he adds, maybe this is John, actually this tradition of circumcision began with the patriarchs, back with Abraham, long before Moses. And And then Jesus explains, verse 23, if the correct time for circumcising your son falls on the Sabbath... So the baby's born on Friday, and eight days later, when the law says the male child should be circumcised, eight days later, that's going to be the Sabbath, okay? He says, what do you do? Well, you go ahead and do it so as not to break the law of Moses. It's very interesting. One law Moses gave to honor the Sabbath is in conflict, at least in their minds, in conflict with the law that you should circumcise a male child on the eighth day of his life. Now, they weren't, that was not a violation of God's intention for the Sabbath, but it was a violation of the intention of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, this Sabbath philosophy they had come up with. So uh, Jesus 
throws it right back at him and says, so why should you be angry with me for healing a man on the Sabbath? Look beneath the surface so you can judge correctly. He's saying, stop being hypocritical. Understand, recognize your own hypocrisy. Wow, it's a strong message. The uh, Pharisees had actually figured out that the human body has 248 separate parts. I don't know how they came up with that number. 248 separate parts, and they reasoned that, uh, you know, correcting or bringing healing to one part of the body on the Sabbath through circumcision, that'd be acceptable because you're only dealing with one part of the 248. So all these legalistic, you know, weighing and checking and trying to work things out so they could keep all of their rules And Jesus is calling them on it and saying, what God intended, you have gone far beyond, and you've actually created it as your own system of trying to get God happy with you instead of recognizing the salvation that God is sending to you in my person. So they are questioning his authority. They're also questioning his identity. Once again, response should be over on the right. So just imagine it there. Here's their next charge and challenge. Uh, Some of the people who lived in Jerusalem started to ask each other, isn't this the man they're trying to kill? Now, this is interesting, isn't it? Because just a minute ago, they said, you're crazy. Who's, Who's trying to kill you? Well, these are people, we just read, people who live in Jerusalem. They've heard the talk from the Jewish leaders, and they are aware There's a plot out for Jesus' life. They're trying to entrap him so they can kill him. And so they are uh, challenging his his identity. Isn't this a man they're trying to kill? But here he is speaking in public, and they say nothing to him. Could our leaders possibly believe that he is the Messiah? But how could he be? For we know where this man comes from. When the Messiah comes... He will simply appear. No one will know where he comes from. They're charging him that you don't meet the birth qualifications to be the Messiah. So here's their dilemma. We know the leaders are trying to kill you, and yet here you are in the temple preaching and teaching and making all these audacious claims, and they're not arresting you. They're not stopping this. Maybe they've heard something new. Maybe they know that you actually are the Messiah, and so they're going to back off here a little bit. But then, wait a minute, wait a minute. They say, you don't, you don't meet the qualification. Look what they say there in verse 27. We know where this man comes from. We know where you were born. We, we know where you are from. And they're thinking, you're from Nazareth up in Galilee. We know where you're from. But when the Messiah comes, he will simply appear. No one will know where he comes from. That was a rabbinic school that was teaching in and about Jerusalem at this time. And there was this teaching that when the Messiah appears, he's just going to kind of poof, come out of nowhere. He won't have the typical, you know, hometown and history and all that. So you're from Nazareth, they say. You're not meeting the qualifications. And notice Jesus' response. He says to them, you guys don't know everything you think you do. (laughs) Verse 28, he says, yes, you know me. I think it's in air quotes. You know me and you know where I come from. At least you think you do. You think I'm from Nazareth. You're not even aware that I'm from Bethlehem is where I was born. And greater than that, you don't know my true origin, which is the throne of God. I am God himself come to you. 
He says, I'm not here on my own. The one who sent me is true, and you don't know him. That's their problem. But I know him because I come from him, and he sent me to you. It's a powerful challenge, and this causes the leaders to now react. And so the confrontation continues here with the crowd through the leaders saying, you know, you should be arrested because you're misleading people. Look down at verse 31, many, uh, or verse 30. Then the leaders tried to arrest him. No one laid a hand on him because his time had not yet come. This is John's theme all the way through. Humans are not in charge of this. God is running this program of redemption. They can't arrest him. Verse 31, many among the crowds of the temple were believing in him. After all, they said, would you expect the Messiah to do more miraculous signs than this man has done? Not sure if John intends to say these people are really trusting in Jesus as the Messiah or they're super impressed with all the miracles and so they're like believing like that in the signs, like the people with the bread six months earlier. Well, when the Pharisees hear this, that the crowds are whispering such things, maybe he's the Messiah, maybe he is. I mean, he fits a lot of the qualifications. Then they and the leading priest sent temple guards to arrest Jesus. They're saying, you're misleading people, you should be arrested. Look at Jesus' response. He says in so many words, you have no control over my comings and goings. Verse 33, Jesus told him, I will be with you only a little longer, then I will return to the one who sent me. You will search for me, but not find me, and you cannot go where I am going. Jesus is saying, I came here to accomplish a mission. You don't know what the mission is because you don't know the one who sent me, even though you claim to represent him. It's so ironic. And he says, I'm only going to be with you a little while longer, and then I'm going to leave, and you're going to search for me, but you will not be able to find me because you can't come where I'm going. It's a powerful statement. Think about it. To these people who think they know God but really don't. Jesus says, you can't come where I'm going, back to be with the Heavenly Father. What a blessed contrast later in chapter 14 when he says to his disciples, when everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will be always with me where I am and you know the way to where I'm going, <laughs> right? But not these, not these people. Well, the reaction of the Jewish leaders is predictable. Verse 35, they don't understand what he's talking about. They're puzzled by this statement. Where is he planning to go, they ask. Is he thinking of leaving the country and going to Jews in other lands? Maybe he will even teach the Greeks. They're saying this like a, an insult to him. You might even go teach people who aren't Jews. What does he mean when he says, you'll search for me, but you can't find me, you can't go... Where I'm, where I'm going. Here the irony is thick. They're accusing Jesus, you might even go to people who aren't Jews with your mission and your message, and that's exactly what Jesus is going to do. Aren't you grateful for that? If you're not of Jewish descent today, he went to where the Jews were included, but not excluding other groups. And so his mission enfolded us all. Oh, what a chaotic, argumentative, rebellious crowd rejecting the creator God who is standing right there in, his, in their midst. 
It's a wonder Jesus doesn't just say, you know what, enough of this, and just zap the whole crowd, you know, just like exterminate the human race. Wouldn't you have been tempted to do that if you were in Jesus' shoes? But instead, something happens now in the story that is an amazing expression of God's grace and mercy to fallen people like us. What we're going to read next here in verse 37 and following, notice verse 37, it says it's the last day, the climax of the festival. Now, do you remember last week or two weeks ago when we were talking about this Feast of Tabernacles and how in the court of the temple they built these 75-foot towers with, with lamps that when they were illuminated, burning throughout the festival at night, it illuminated the whole city coming off the hill there on which the temple was located. And then this special last day celebration finale of the water ceremony. Let me read Don Carson's description of this because it, it, it eloquently builds it up to exactly what it was. Carson writes, On the seven days of the feast, a golden flagon was filled with water from the pool of Siloam and was carried in a procession led by the high priest back to the temple. As the procession approached the water gate on the south side of the inner court, three blasts from a trumpet were sounded. While the pilgrims watched, the priest processed around the altar with the flagon, the temple choir singing the Hallel, that's Psalm 113 through 118. And when the choir reached Psalm 118, every male pilgrim shook a willow branch in one hand, willow and myrtle twigs tied with a palm, and in his left hand raised a piece of citrus fruit, which was the symbol of the engathered harvest, and everyone cried, give thanks to the Lord, three times. The water was offered to God at the time of the morning sacrifice, along with the daily drink offering of wine. The wine and the water were poured into their respective silver bowls and then poured out before the Lord. Moreover, these ceremonies of the Feast of Tabernacles were related in Jewish thought both to the Lord's provision of water in the desert and to the Lord's pouring out of the Spirit in the last days. Pouring at the Feast of Tabernacles refers symbolically to the Messianic age in which a stream from the sacred rock would flow over the whole earth. This is the setting. This is the moment. Jesus is no longer in the shadows. He's going to step right out onto center stage. And look what he's going to say at this high point of the festival. Everybody whipped into a fever pitch celebrating the water that God is going to give. Verse 37, Jesus stood, and it doesn't say he spoke. It says he shouted to the crowds. Anyone who is thirsty may come to me. You hear that? Anyone who is thirsty may come to me. You're looking for the fountain of youth, is what Jesus is saying. You realize things are broken and that people aren't supposed to die? There's a fountain of youth, and I'm the fountain of youth, he's saying. Anyone who's thirsty may come to me. Anyone who believes in me may come and drink. For the Scriptures declare, rivers of living water will flow from his heart. When Jesus says these words, you can imagine the drama of this moment. No doubt the pilgrims are now remembering the words of Isaiah, something like this. Anyone thirsty? Come and drink. 
you don't need money. Or from Isaiah 12, with joy you will drink deeply from the fountain of salvation. All of these verses they had learned in their Sunday school classes as kids, right? There is all echoing back now. Drink, come and drink without money. And here's Jesus saying, anyone who's thirsty, come and drink. I'm the water. Or Zechariah, on that day, living waters will flow out of Jerusalem. And here's Jesus talking about living water that's going to flow from everyone's heart. Now, John explains in the narrator's edition here, verse 39, when he said living water, he was speaking of the Spirit who would be given to everyone believing in him. But the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet entered into his glory. John is explaining for us what is we read, keep reading the Gospel of John, we come to chapter 20, and John is going to record for us how Jesus says to the disciples after his resurrection, they all failed and forsook him, and they're like, okay, that was that, I guess we're on the shelf now. And Jesus says, no, here's the deal. Uh, as the Father has sent me, I'm going to send you, okay? And so you guys are still plan A, there's no plan B. And then John says in John 20, he breathed on them. And it takes us all the way back to Genesis 1 that God breathed into man's nostrils the breath of life. And that first creation became a living soul and sin wrecked it all. And here is Jesus saying, breathing life into a new creation, a new humanity, a new start. That is a prediction of what is to come in this new heavens and new earth wherein there will be a beautiful river of water flowing as provision for the people of God. John is referring here to Isaiah 44 where, where this idea of water quenching our thirst and the Spirit coming upon us is tied together. I will pour out water to quench your thirst. I will pour out my Spirit upon your descendants, my blessing on your children. You see, uh, believers in the Old Testament uh, times did not, they were empowered by the Holy Spirit, but apparently not indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And so in the age of the New Testament, the church age, we have this, we take it for granted, you know, we take it for granted, but the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God actually tabernacles in His people, in us and among us, our bodies and our body. <laughs> We're the temple now that God inhabits and powers through His Spirit. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And here is Jesus graciously saying to these rebels, I know I should exterminate you, but I'm telling you, I'm the living water, and anyone who's thirsty, come on. Come on, get a drink. Well, how do they respond? Predictably, just like people today respond, with divided opinions about Jesus. Look at verse 40. When the crowds heard him say this, some of them declared, whoa, surely this man is the prophet we've been expecting. Talking about Deuteronomy 18, Moses said there's a prophet like me that's going to be raised up. Maybe he is that individual. Others said, no, he's the Messiah. He's the anointed one. He's the Davidic king. And still others said, who are hung up on this birth thing, well, well, he can't be. Will the Messiah come from Galilee? 
For the, the scriptures clearly state that the Messiah will be, will be born of the royal line of David in Bethlehem, the village where King David was born. Here's the irony again. They don't know these people saying this. They knew about Micah 5 too. They knew about the prediction of Bethlehem. They don't know that he was born in Bethlehem. But we know he was born in Bethlehem. And so as the reader, we're like, huh, he is born in Bethlehem. He's the Messiah. He fits all the qualifications. But verse 43, the crowd was divided about him and some even wanted him arrested, but no one laid a hand on him. In other words, God is still sovereignly protecting his son until that moment determined by God, the height of human experience when Christ is going to lay down his life. What a powerful, moving, gripping expression of God's mercy and grace in sending Christ to rebellious people. And we're not just talking about the Jews now, we're talking about all of us. And what an expansive invitation he gives. The fountain of youth exists. <laughs> you come and drink, and as he said to the woman of Samaria at the well, you'll never be thirsty again. Now, physically, yeah, you get thirsty, but spiritually, this will satisfy this thirst that your soul has. Well, here's the lesson I want us to leave with today. This is what the story is saying to us. Don't be wrong about Jesus. Don't uh, say, oh, he's just a good teacher, but he wasn't God. That's impossible. Good teachers don't go around claiming to be God unless they really are. <laughs> don't be wrong about Jesus, for he alone is the living water satisfies our longing for eternal life. He's the living water that satisfies that longing in your heart that you've not been able to put a name on. You've tried to fill it with this, that, and the other. Our culture is feverishly trying to feel that longing, to scratch that itch. And here's Jesus saying, I'm the living water. I'm the only one who can satisfy the thirst that you feel in your soul. So uh, we're going to listen to a song as we close before the band comes up and leads us in another song. And I want you to listen to the words of this song, watch the video, and if, if you're a, a person here today and you say, you know what, Sam, I've, I've not come into this kind of relationship you're talking about, I want you to reflect on these words and listen to the invitation. C consider it to be Jesus talking to you, saying, hey, if you're thirsty... I'm the one who satisfies your thirst. Come to me. And for all of us who know Christ, as you listen to these words and hear the beautiful music by uh, Keith and Kristen Getty, just thank God for what we have. <laughs> We've been received. We've been forgiven. Our rebellion has been paid for, and we have been given the blessing of his presence with us. He says, I'm with you all the days unto the end of the age in the person of my spirit. So let's listen and rejoice and thank God in our hearts. Are you thirsty? Are you empty? Come and drink these living water. Tired and broken Unspoken rest beside these living.